Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Lore Untold. My name is Lexi. I go by she, her. My name is Talison. I use they, them pronouns. And we are here today to talk about some fun stuff. Wow, we're going to be talking about Paylor in this episode and all sorts about sun divinities and uh, lots of things about the sun and about the history of divinities and divinity systems in Dungeons and Dragons as a game. How these kind of episodes work is one of us will be doing the research and the other one will be learning and the person learning may or may not already know about the topic. Uh, hopefully I'll learn some new things. I'm excited to learn some new things. Okay, so before I start getting into some of the things that I learned, I want to give a small disclaimer. There are so many historical, religious traditions and mythologies that have narratives involving the sun. So many that it is almost too many to count and too many for me to research in a reasonable amount of time. So many. So. So many. <laughs> to make my research somewhat manageable, I started with what I knew, mm -hmm. which means that a lot of the historical mythologies I looked into were from a predominantly Eurocentric perspective and Eurocentric communities, because that's what I have experienced. That's what I know. I also think knowing what we know about early creations of Dungeons and Dragons, that's likely what they were looking at, too, which is unfortunate, but presumably true. But as we continue in the future to engage with other forms of media that touch on sort of some of these same traditions, I think that will give us an opportunity to engage with a more diverse background of myths. But I just wanted to come out of the gate and say, I know the examples, historical examples I have are Eurocentric. And I'm sorry about that, but it's what I have. And we're excited for the opportunity to bring people in who probably know more than us yes. uh, and revisit topics with people's uh, perspective as things continue to evolve in TTRPG spaces. So it just means that we get to talk about it more later. Exactly. Okay, so before we start, I want to know what you know about Paylor. Okay, I know most of what I know is from Critical Role. Okay. So I know he's also called the Dawn Father. Mm -hmm. He is the sun god. He's also like the, he's kind of the Zeus in Critical Role's structure. I know they don't strictly follow to the T what these gods' places are in, I say this in quotes, D&D canon. Okay. I know that he really fucked up Asmodeus in yeah. Calamity. Other than that, I presume that he's in some way influenced by other sun gods and possibly also Zeus and Jupiter. Okay. I, yeah. I. Some of that I looked into, <laughs> some of that I didn't. So let's talk about what I did learn. <laughs> okay, yeah. So Paylor... The Morning Lord, the Dawn Father, the Shining One. He's got lots of different names, but we're here to talk about Paylor, and I'm very excited. So, to cover sort of a brief history of how divinity systems in Dungeons and Dragons originated and what they looked like in early games was something I found really interesting when doing research. So, mm -hmm. in the original Dungeons and Dragons, first edition, Gods didn't sort of come out until the fourth supplement was written. It was called Gods, Demigods, and Heroes. And it was the first sort of book that talked about gods. Okay. In that list of gods, it was mostly historic divinity systems. So Makes sense. Yeah, so it had things like Egyptian, 
Greek, Celtic, but it also had existing religious practices. So, like, it talked about, like, the Hindu gods, which is, like, a practice that is currently in use um, by millions of people in the world. And it was presented in a manner that was for use in a fantasy world. So, like, not super great um, that you're presenting these figures all the same time. Included in that list, in that sort of, like, very first early edition of Dungeons & Dragons, was an adaption from the Hyborian Age, which I had never heard of. I've never heard of that Um, either. (laughs) Yeah, some book by a guy named Robert E. Hauer called The Hyborian Age from Conan the Cimmerian. That sounds familiar, but I don't know if I'm just thinking Real, a classic fantasy, I think. I don't know if I'm just thinking of Conan the Barbarian there. (laughs) You know, that's what I thought as well, but I don't think it's related. No, I don't think so. (laughs) But for the most part, this first early editions of Dungeons and Dragons was just traditional mythologies and some religious traditions that were gauged as being in quotations, and with a look of annoyance, fantastical enough to be included in a fantasy world, which, like, is bad, and I wish they didn't do. Please, listeners, know that I I rolled at that. Yeah. There were many eye rolls from both of us. (laughs) Okay. So when D&D transitioned into advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which is, Mm -hmm. like, the next step, there was an additional list of gods that was about the same. It introduced Cthulhu gods for the first time, but it still predominantly... Like, the main list was this historical mythologies. This, for the first time, introduced gods uh, for a given race. So, for example, like, this is when Corellin and Sehanine were introduced as, like, gods of the elves. There were also gods given for specific domains. So overall gods of, like, the sea and the sky were also included. They didn't have as much, like, mythology or mythos written about them as much as sort of, like, a name and their domains okay. no, like, so, like, some the stuff written, but... kind of like the list we still see in the back of 5e that are like yeah similarly gods. yep um, it, 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 some of them did have more lore than others some of them had stat blocks which is super fun Ooh. i guess like throw a god in your game why not so in the third edition of dungeons and dragons is sort of the first time we see paylor be introduced into the list of gods okay. now paylor was included within a setting um, so Paylor came along with the Greyhawk setting. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Uh, I have heard of Greyhawk. I will admit, I always, my brain, every single time, tries to make it the Grey Wardens from Dragon Age. Oh, <laughs> I mean. Not related at all. That's not what that is, but I would love a campaign setting of that. Yeah, I love Dragon that would Age. be fun. <laughs> yeah. So I guess technically like a little bit prior to 30, so like in between Advanced D&D and 3rd Edition, um, published in magazines um the magazine dragons very that's what it was called. So, such cool cover art on those if you if any yeah. of you haven't looked up uh that the uh, the way back machine is a great resource for all of those kind of magazines and the covers mm-hmm. are just incredible they're they're yeah very classic 80s tnt yeah art. very just like and it's in that it's in that 80s movie poster uh, yes. drawn style like all the star wars things and like the goonies and stuff it's like that kind of vibe to them um and it just makes them inc- i want posters of those kind of things like they're incredible <laughs> <laughs> yeah so prior to the publications it was actually the world that gygax like played in pre-publication okay. and then it turned into this sort of like recognized setting through a series of articles published in magazines for AD&D and then transitioned into being an actual full 
There are many, many, many books about it for third edition. And I think also 3.5. Don't quote me on that part. I know for sure for third edition. Okay. I found very interesting, not super related, but there were several books and short stories written Ooh. in the world of Greyhawk. Ooh. One of which is written by someone named Andre Norton, which actually is a pen name for Alice Mary Norton, who was the first woman inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. And so she like wrote these really cool um, fantasy and like fantasy novels and Dungeons and Dragons novels under the pen name of a man and like is a woman. I'm gonna have to give those a read. I'm gonna have to see if I can find I, yeah. them somewhere. One of them is called Quay Keep. That's the one I have written that she wrote. And I just thought it was really cool that this presumed man, like a woman wrote under a pen name, nerdy D and D literature. We love to see it. I just it. loved it. <laughs> like not related to Paler at all. Is just very cool, and I want to learn more yeah, about her. Yeah. There were several D&D publications about Greyhawk, both in the magazines and then also external ones, but very few of them focused on deities. Um, there was an article written in one of the magazines that introduced a new pantheon, but it didn't have Paylor in it. So it was like sort of a long time until we got information about Paylor. Mm. Um, there's a little bit prior in the magazines that talked about him, but most of it came from the actual a campaign guide and setting books okay. that came out in third edition. Technically, Greyhawk as a world setting has four different conflicting pantheons. And so, so there's, yeah, <laughs> I think like two of them belong to the humans and Paylor is in one of the ones that belongs to the humans. Okay. And then there's two other ones and they have a lot of crossover. So like Paylor is one of the sun divinities in the world because he's only in one of the pantheons, but there is another one and another pantheon, like for example, like Foltis is the god of light and law. And he also exists in the Greyhawk setting and has like crossover with Paylor, but they're in fully different divinity systems. Yeah. Oh, I I kind of love when that happens because that's like like in theory, like that's how our world. Yeah, that's works, how our world works. You know, so it's like if you think about it, this would just send me down a rabbit hole. But like, if you, <laughs> I love to think how gods from different pantheons would interact. Mm -hmm. You know, if the if the concept that all gods are true, which is like. I'm agnostic, I think, you know, all guards are true until proven not true. Uh, and we haven't proven anything with science yet. Uh, so in that, in that thinking, like, how would these deities who have so much overlap interact with each other? Mm -hmm. Like, do they say, like, I want a vacation from being the Lord of Light. Can you just, like, take this over I don't think me? so. Like <laughs> I'm not even sure if they like each other. I don't know. True. I don't know. True. I know that they had a feast day that was shared together, at least between Paylor and some of the other gods with similar um, domains. And they had like an interfaith day of celebration between their overlapping communities. But yeah, I have no idea sort of the gods relations to one another. I didn't look it. I didn't look into that. There was a lot of information. I did not get there. <laughs> so the Greyhawk Paylor, who's sort of like the origins of where he comes from, uh, is one given masculine he described he's he he looks like a guy he's just like a he's he's just like an old man he's a guy um okay i see him he very much is giving me zeus vibes yeah he's just a man that's he's it just a guy he's just a guy with like a hood and a staff and that's it but he's the god of in in greyhawk he's the god of the sun of light of strength and of healing i love that he's wearing birkenstocks yeah he's like yeah, it's just like very traditional, like if you think like hippie dad. That's the vibe I get from Paylor. 
yeah. the art alone. These clothes are all probably linen and incredibly comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. He seems like he gardens outside, um, but also, like, is always kind of angry. <laughs> Makes sense. And that's what he looks like. That's what he feels like. Those are the vibes I get from him, from that official art alone. In addition to, like, light and strength and healing, his domains also include community, which I found really interesting, as well as, like, glory and goodness, which a lot of different iterations of Paylor sort of, like, through what we see in Greyhawk and how we see described in other settings. He is very much, like, described as a good deity, if we're going to care about alignment at all. But at the same time, it's, like, good, but also with, like, unyielding strength and power, which is very much feels like two conflicting things. It does. But that it's also, like, common with gods yeah, in, yeah. in mythology that they're like, I'm so nice to the humans, but also I will crush you if yeah. you blink the wrong way. That's what it, yeah. <laughs> yep. Sort of. Palo's got the same vibe going on. He was also referred to as the Shining One or the Sun Father, and there were a bunch of communities that referred to him as Soul, which I found interesting because okay. Soul is a name given to historical mythologies. Mm-hmm. And it was also given one that they called him, which I mean, it's just, it's Sun in multiple languages. His holy symbol, also just a face and a sun. That's it. We got a face and a sun. So is, uh, is what we see on the Teletubbies just Paylor? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Perhaps. So, as far as his realm, like, where where Paylor resides, um, it's explained differently in a number of different editions. So, he originally resided in the mortal realm, and he had a large manor that was just surrounded by orchards and vineyards and farms. But yeah, it's sort of like the first mention within D&Ds thus far that I could find for Paylor being related at all to agriculture, um, with, with, with the exception that a lot of his followers are commoners because he's one of the human mortal uh, gods, um, and a lot of his followers are farmers, agriculture, but his domain is not agriculture. That's yeah, someone else's, I think. I don't know. His domain is a son, but lots of people from like small communities follow him, which makes sense. Makes sense that it's because it's kind of related to agriculture. You can't have yes. agriculture without sunshine, so yeah, that makes sense as an adjacent god. But yeah, so he first resided mortal realm, big house, lots of plants, and then at some point, <laughs> this like system of wars was introduced into Greyhawk, and his fortress fort wherever he lived. Um, it didn't change. Like, there was no, like, physical change to the location. They just, the writers just changed their minds as to where he lived. And so now he lives in Elysium in the Fortress of the Sun. And it's a okay. big manor, very, very big, very intimidating. And it sort of aligned with the addition of martial domains, like strength. That was when that was sort of incorporated and added into Paylor. So previously, that wasn't a thing he did. And then they introduced wars, and they're like, oh, yeah, somebody's got to do this. This guy. Some guy, he's going to do it. Just keep slapping duties onto him. Yeah, we'll keep giving him more stuff to do. (laughs) And one of them's going to be real strong. In fourth edition, they said, "Mm, we're going to change our mind one more time. And (laughs) he lived in a place called Havastar, which translates to the Bright City. Um, and it was a place of precious stone and metal on floating islands. Look at the sun guy. That's so reflective. Yeah. I don't know why he got the precious stones and metal. 
That seems like if you're pulling from mythology, it's going to go to death, but that's okay. It went to Paylor in 4th edition. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's very that's very Hades for me. That's right? Like yeah. Underground. Nope. It, Paylor got it in 4th edition, but then in 5th edition, he's back to Elysium. So they just couldn't decide where he lives. No one could choose. I also, I also always find it interesting when they are like uh, these gods that are original to us very much live in established places in mythology. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. But like in D&D, gods are real. And like we have definitive evidence that they're real in, in, in like fantasy worlds and in Dungeons and Dragons specifically. And so we have to know where they live, I guess, because they exist as not just ether. He had three holy days in the Greyhawk system. Um, one of them was bread giving day. And so food was distributed to the poor, which we love. I guess the guy whose domain is community, whose followers are predominantly individuals residing in smaller farming towns, makes sense to have a day given to goodness and giving food. And we love that. Um, the second one is the Feast of Idora, which is that interfaith celebration. And the third one is Solstice. It's his holy day. We're going to celebrate Paylor on Solstice, which makes perfect sense. It's the day he's yep. here the longest, right? Makes perfect sense. If he's the sun, he's around the longest. That makes sense to me. And that's sort of all Greyhawk covers on Paylor. Interesting. His Obviously, his stats exist, and they're wild, and <laughs> it's a lot of numbers. And I read yeah. through it, and I thought, wow, it's a lot of numbers. But essentially, that's all they have to say. There isn't a lot of lore about his creation or ways in which he sort of influences the world that I could find. Part of the thing is that I really struggled to find some of those magazines not knowing edition or year numbers, only finding a note in one place and not being able to track down an exact replica. Oh, yeah. So I've got what was in the source books which is great, and some of what was in the magazines. But there wasn't as much lore, sort of just like, this is a guy, this is what he does, this is the world he lives in. A little bit about, about how he relates to the other members of his pantheon and other pantheons in the world. Um, but sort of left it up to players and DMs to do what they're going to do with the story and write it how they're going to write it, which is I like not surprising. Uh, I think that kind of thing is nice, though, because then as a GM, you don't feel like shoehorned into only being able to doing one thing with a, a god. The same thing applies to monsters, too, if you have kind of a vague background and you can easily adapt it to your own campaign. Uh, I mean, which is the point? Which is the point? Um, and obviously there are, if you want a god that has a solid background that you don't have to, you know, come up with homebrew stuff on your own, there's so many, so many sun gods yeah. from many different cultures. I mean, truly an endless yes. list. And getting into that what a great transition you didn't even know i was about to transition but i'm transitioning and you led me there perfectly thank you sometimes um, things work out perfectly yeah <laughs> if we're thinking about sort of why mythologies and narratives and stories specifically historical and in the real world if you will so if we think about like why those stories exist they exist as a way for us as people to explain like how we exist in the world, how the world exists around us and before us, and like stories to explain mm -hmm. things is a really big sort of aspect of religion and mythology and like narratives that we as humans tell. And so if we think about that being one of the reasons we tell stories, 
then like yeah it makes a lot of sense why we've got a lot of stories about the sun because it's there it's, it's always, always there it's there every day it doesn't yeah. leave it's very big everyone sees yeah. it it's like yeah i fully sun, get it sun moon sky very very big in the god yeah. department water also big yeah <laughs> also big like we've got there's lots of divinities and gods and goddesses that are very small for minute things for things that maybe not every culture would think of. The sun? It's Everyone, one almost every culture thought of. Everyone go. There it is. Seems kind of magical. Seems kind of like, maybe not even magical, but like powerful, impactful, influential. How did it get there? Let's figure out how. By telling a story to reason with why it exists. So, we're going to start with the Greeks. Okay. Okay. So, who do you think of when you think of, like, Greek gods of the sun? Because of what I thought was wrong. Helios. Oh, okay. So, I thought Apollo. Oh, uh, yeah. I, uh, I used to be obsessed with Apollo, so I, I've known that he's not, that it's actually Helios. Yeah. Um, I just, I just didn't connect it. Apollo's not a god I learned a ton about. Mm-hmm. I knew that at some point there was a connection to the sun with Apollo, but I... Just was like, oh yeah, he's the sun god. When I get to look and I'll look up Apollo first and I was wrong, it is Helios. And I think it's, I think part of that for me came from Percy Jackson because Artemis was uh, kind of described as like a moon person. So obviously Apollo is going to be the sun person. Helios is just sitting in the background like, my guys, it's me. <laughs> yeah. Which sort of is what he does in a lot of the mythologies. So Helios is the Greek word for like heavenly body of the sun. Is how I found it defined. They're a deity that's not seen in mythologies as a lead figure or character, but as someone that lends their power to other divinities. Okay, that makes sense. They are occasionally actually classified as a titan and not a god, depending on like what story is being told and who's telling it. That kind of makes sense. It's like it's like when you see like uh, elementals. Yeah. Like, like powerful, powerful elementals. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, I guess the guy was busy. He's got a lot to do, pulling that sun across every day. Originally, did you know that his carriage was drawn by bulls and not horses? I did not know that. Yeah. And he actually, originally, had 350 cattle that resided on an island that we saw in the Odyssey. And those cattle were guarded by his children, Pethusa and Lampatia, who were the Illuminating and the Shining. Interesting. But that carriage was originally drawn by bulls and not horses, which I find interesting because I didn't know. I'm picturing just this glorious island of all the different kinds of cows. Just chilling. You know, Highland cows and what Americans associate as dairy cows. I can't remember the breed, the breed of cow they are. But just all the different kinds of cows, just chilling. Yeah. He had lots of bulls. They were protected. They were his sacred animal, which is great for him until the Odyssey happened. And that's fine. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> a lot of things are great for everyone until the Odyssey happened. <laughs> Accurate. Oh, boy, did Odysseus get up to some shit. Oof. And that's okay. <laughs> um, Homer actually refers to him not just by the name Helios, but also by the name Hyperion, which I didn't know and just thought was interesting. I have heard that. Helios has a lot of the similar traits of strength and unchangingness we see reflected in Paylor. But because we see so little of Helios, because he isn't one of the main figures, he's only someone who lends his power to other gods, other demigods, mortals, 
we don't see as much of Helios. And so it's really hard to make a lot of the comparisons to Paylor outside of the unwavering strength. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Apollo, who I, I thought was related to the sun, does have association to the sun. I have not been able to pinpoint where it came from, which is really interesting. And I read a lot of articles and books and tried to figure out sort of where it originated from. And all I can identify is that it originated from some time within the 5th century BCE. Mm-hmm. At some point, he became associated with the name Phoebus, which means bright. And that was sort of the beginning of Apollo being attributed with the sun and light. And prior to that, he wasn't. There's a lot of researchers who think that he was one of the gods that didn't originate from within Greek culture, but was actually introduced to Greek culture by other sort of regional or or traveling individuals. But yeah, prior to the 5th century BCE, he was not associated with the sun at all. And then sometime around the 5th century, something, some narrative was told, someone attached him to the name Phoebus, and then from then on, he became associated with the sun to some degree more than Helios. Yeah. Or was seen more visibly than Helios because he is one of the gods who we see as a main figure in narratives more frequently. That makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so moving on from talking about Greek mythology to discussing Roman, there are a couple of different well-known, I guess, most prominent Mm -hmm. sun deities existing in in Roman culture. Important to note that a lot of Roman emperors changed and influenced the mythologies of the time that was what was prominent at the time particularly interesting i didn't know they did that yeah yeah they're like i'm in charge now and this is the one we follow which for what i know about (laughs) roman emperors makes a ton of sense it does (laughs) yeah okay so the first one soul who started as a separate being from helios but then later became connected like sort of like conflated to the same being as is pretty common Mm -hmm. with with greek and roman mythologies they all absorb each other yeah and that absorption happened sometime around the first century bce (laughs) Worship of soul was most common within within Roman Italy and not as okay. much within external places that the Roman Empire had okay. uh, power and control and influence Yeah, the colonies over. were very still like fucking yeah. Rome. <laughs> <laughs> and then religious practices from Eastern traditions sort of increased in popularity in the second century and like soul was no longer worshipped as prominently. Ooh. His chariot was led by eagles. Oh, that's different. I love that. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. I feel like we talked a lot about how horses fly. And like, I don't think I look at a horse and I don't think you're going to fly. But like a flying chariot carrying the sun, let's have something pulling it that flies. That checks out. (laughs) That makes sense. So often, so often in folklore and mythology, people are like, hmm, this land bound animal let's just make them spontaneously fly without wings or anything just yeah go, go ahead you're good now most prominently helios's <laughs> bulls why did they fly whenever whenever i hear about that all i can think of is the cows episode with vox machina yes it's just flying cows but this one this one's led by eagles excellent i love it <laughs> So in the second century, with the introduction of religious practices from Eastern traditions, it wasn't that there was no sun god. There was just a new one introduced. And so we have Sol, who was common prior to the second century, and then introduced the new one, which is Sol Invictus, which means unconquering sun. Very similar name because that's how Latin works. Very good name because it's the sun is a deadly laser. Sun is a deadly laser. (laughs) And that is a Syrian sun deity that influenced and removed the practice of soul. Their feast day, December 25th. Mmm, convenient. Convenient. Which stares at all of Christianity. (laughs) Makes me think, is that where that came from? I don't, I don't remember exactly which tradition 
Christiana took that one from, but might have been this mythology. <laughs> Who knows? Someone knows. I just don't have the answer. Someone does have the answer. It's just not Lexi today. Someone somewhere. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And so that's the change that happened in Roman culture, a little bit about their sun deity. The differences between Sol and Sol Invictus is mostly seen in their <laughs> mannerisms, which are pretty clear from their names. Sol Latin translates to sun, as in like, that's where our word sun comes from, is from the Latin root sol. And then like Sol Invictus, unconquering sun, very much that strength of power and force in mythology, which checks out with some of the, the ways we've talked about how Paylor is represented. So you can sort of see some of those comparisons coming through with sun divinities in Roman yeah. culture. One feels like your cool hippie dad and the other feels like ominous presence yeah 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 (laughs) yeah i also wonder a little bit if the soul invictus was so supported by roman emperors because it sort of aligned with the perspective to ruling that a lot of roman emperors took so yeah I, i just wonder if that's aligned in power for roman emperors to be like yes all powerful sun deity all powerful emperor who is me one and the same Which makes sense, you know, if you're going to give yourself unfettered power, why not also make the gods that are being practiced in your culture also have unfettered power? (laughs) So it looks like you have more ground to stand on. Fuck the Romans. Anyways, um, moving on from Roman to maybe a less obvious ship, we're going to talk a little bit about Norse soul deities, which is hard to find a lot of information on due to the abundance of Norse mythology that exists and the manner in which it is so... I'm putting my hands together and crossing them um, like a big jumbled happy slash unhappy knot. And I love yeah. that. I'm not. There's so many minor yeah. gods that it's intimidating. And I would like, to, I'm so thrilled to get to learn a lot more about Norse mythology because it is fascinating. But do I know where to start with that? I guess here. I guess I started here with it and I'll <laughs> go from there. So they have a couple deities prominent who have a sort of influence and relation to the sun. The most prominent being Sol. Same name. Similar root, language root we system. We love consistency. Yeah, we love consistency. <laughs> not the same god, let's be clear. Not the same god, just the same name. Nice. Which m- makes sense when we look at the etymology of how like languages develop. Checks out. Yeah, and it's always interesting when non-Latin languages have Latin root words and you see the cultural exchange of language. That is, I'm huge into that. Yeah. I love seeing that. Yeah. So anyway, that's a whole other, that's a whole episode. I know. I've, <laughs> ooh, I've studied a lot of, yeah, I love the study of language. Ugh, fascinating. So there, yeah, Sol, they commanded a chariot led by two horses. Those horses have names. What are the names? Excuse my pronunciation. Arvac and Alsvin. Okay. which means early awake slash walker and fleet one. Oh, I like that. And they protected their horses with the shields fallen to protect them from the damaging rays of the sun. Oh, we love not giving our horses skin cancer. Yeah, love it. <laughs> we got to make sure they're going to stay safe. Yeah. <laughs> so we love that. There's a couple of other Norse mythology gods that have narratives attributed to the sun and the sky, like Freya and Odor, like have connection to the sky, but mm-hmm. not necessarily... They, like, have attributes related to the sun and the sky and similar mythos, but also not. Like, it doesn't feel like their domain entirely. Moving on a little bit from Norse, more to Celtic. I don't, again, don't have as much information about Norse gods other than who they are and uh, how they drive their chariot. (laughs) I get a lot of facts about who's who's driving the chariot. It's great. Not everyone has a chariot, but lots of them do. Paylor should have a chariot. I don't think he does, and I think that he needs one. 
I um, think we can... listeners, can you email us what uh, at laurentold at gmail.com what you think Paylor's chariot should look like and yeah. what animals should Or tweet at us and we'll put up a poll. Yes. Oh, yes. That's yeah. an even better idea. <laughs> tweet at us what you think might be pulling Paylor's chariot and we'll put a poll up afterwards and we'll see. We'll all vote. And then maybe if Taliesin has art spoons, they will draw it. Yes. Yeah, I'm shocked Paylor doesn't have a chariot considering how common that one is. But I guess that's one they didn't want to incorporate and that's fine. So the Celtic god Belenus, who is the god of sunlight and healing, interestingly, is where a lot of that, like we know that Paylor, one of his domains like is healing and strength. And we saw like sort of like strength represented in a lot of other sun divinities like um, the North Soul, like Sol Invictus, like even the primary soul from Roman culture, uh, like Apollo, like all the other gods that like had crossover domains with strength but like um the celtic bellinus sort of is sort of in line with apollo who has association with the sun but also association with healing is specifically bellinus's domains are sunlight and healing and he's said to have which i love this quote melted disease from human bodies in the same way as he dispersed mist and fog every morning which is just like a really Ooh. lovely way to think of like yeah divine healing especially because it so often in non-modern times i mean like up until the early 20th century and like we recognize the importance now but like so much of medicine was making sure people got fresh air Mm -hmm. and were out in the sun and like you that's why you'd see people being sent to the ocean to like have some like fresh clean air and Mm -hmm. stuff that to like walk out into bellness's presence it would just cleanse you oh wish we could do that i I know i wish (laughs) Later, Roman and Greek influence upon the region in which Bellinus was worshipped did have a little bit of conflation between Bellinus and Apollo. Makes sense. They have very, very similar sort of domain crossovers, which added to Apollo's existing sun attributions. So that's one of the ways that people theorize as to how he got associated with the sun, because we don't really know. We don't have a clear answer as to how. We just sort of know when. And that's one theory as to sort of how that worked, but I'm not sure what time period that conflation happened. So I don't know how much it is a reason and just an added added thing that happened, which is kind of cool. As far as Egyptian mythology goes, a lot of divinities in Egyptian mythology have attributes to the sun, of the sun, from the sun. We have Ra, which is the god in which life comes from, has connections to the sun. The god Aten, who is literally depicted as a solar disk and rays. And many, 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 many more that seem to have domain and divinity over the sun and in relation to the sun and in connection to the sun. When we start looking at actual mythological tales and stories, lots of people have influence with the sun. And so I I don't have one. Um, There's just so many and that's wonderful. It makes sense because Egypt is in such a sunny section of the earth. Yes, much further south. So that's sort of a little bit what I have for in quotations, real world mythology, influences that may have come from Paylor from existing mythology and and mythos and talking a little bit about some of existing divinity systems. I do want to talk a little bit about prominent representations of Paylor in well-known media. So what I want to talk about is critical role that both of us are avid appreciators of. Yes. (laughs) Just because that is sort of like probably the most well-known 
actual play out there, used the system in which Pele was initially a part of, the Greyhawk divinity system, as initially their divinity system. And so important to talk about how their interpretation and use of Paylor influenced what the maybe general public knows about what's going on with that guy. Yeah, he's in two, well, a campaign and a mini campaign, he's played a very prominent part. Mm-hmm. Actually physically seen in a form twice. Yes. Pretty decently well-known and talked about. And I think a lot of people's perceptions maybe come from what they know about Paylor from Critical Role, which is totally fair and valid. <clears throat> in Critical Role Land, he is referred to solely as the Dawn Father, which is likely in an effort to illustrate that it's a different deity than the one used in the original Greyhawk setting and also probably to avoid copyright infringement. <laughs> just just copyright infringement things. <laughs> yeah, which as librarians, get it. I get it. It's, yep. you know, it's, I get it. You got to change the name. Domains are still the sun and healing and agriculture. He is associated with the sun and summer, as well as being known as the keeper of time, which is an interesting way to look at sun deities. It makes sense. We measure time by like how many times we go around the sun. And if you're yeah. in charge of the sun, I guess you keep control of the time. He's also known as the lord of agriculture and the harbinger of harvest, which is my favorite one. He's terrifying calamity. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that like big, tall sun guy who's wrecking house. Let's just call him the harbinger of harvest. And mortals can't even perceive his face because it's just such bright light yeah. that it's like yeah feast day also midsummer which aligns with some of the other stuff which makes sense his realms in elysium is a citadel surrounded by orchards which aligns with sort of the initial realms for Paylor originally or just a large manor surrounded by orchards mm -hmm. so it's not like a floating rock in the sky with shiny bits anymore we're back to citadel with orchards which lines up with some of the earlier depictions of, of Paylor's realms you get that sassy tree that sasses Keyleth I know we <laughs> love a sassy tree truly <laughs> it's the, he's very similar in temperament it's like unyieldingly strong overwhelming in strength overabundance of personality and godhood and heat which makes sense with sort of like the changes that happened in Paylor and later Greyhawk settings where he adopted those domains of strength that came with the wars and so it makes sense seems to follow along the same line as that version of Paylor but like with some additions he is not depicted as a just a guy He's no longer no. a dad in Birkenstocks. He's, he's um, very much not your dad in Birkenstocks. No, he not your dad not, in Birkenstocks. He is not flipping burgers at the at the grill. No, I think even if he likes you, he's not your dad in Birkenstocks no. anymore. <laughs> no. He's depicted as just sort of light in armor. So like if you were to take the sun and put it in a form that could fit in a suit of armor. So like very like anthropomorphic light, but like inhabiting a suit of armor. And then the symbol changed rather from the flaming face shield, which was a vibe, <laughs> to an eight-pointed star depicted most frequently as stained glass, which makes a lot of sense for my son. Mm -hmm. And that's that's sort of what I've got on Paylor. He's an interesting character. I wasn't expecting him to be your dad vibing in Birkenstocks, who just happens to have control over the sun. Because I'm so used to like my introduction was critical role like scary dad <laughs> yeah and it definitely it definitely started that way in Greyhawker like it feels like it started that way but then eventually they were like no we're gonna make him scary but he's still gonna look like dad who flips burgers yeah. and wears Birkenstocks <laughs> very deceiving very deceiving so I don't know it's interesting and you can see very heavily influenced by a lot of existing mythology. There is an abundance of it in regards to the sun. So it makes sense that there were influences pulled from there and pulled from other places as well because they're sort of like so 
much of it mm-hmm. to be able to be taking bits and pieces from other mythologies to create our our own which is really interesting that's what i've got on Paylor. he's a cool dude <laughs> i think he's pretty toasty actually <laughs> i'm sorry that, that was, was bad no, that was excellent <laughs> that was perfect <laughs> okay do we just cut on that <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Lore Untold. We hope you had a nice time. Maybe learned some things. Maybe have some thoughts about how you're going to put either Birkenstock, Dad, or uh, Big Sun Guy in your own games. And if you do, please tell us about it. If you liked the show and you liked what you're hearing, you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you're listening to. And if you want to find more about the podcast, you can join us over on Patreon or on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Lore Untold. You can send us an email if you have strong words to say about Paylor at loreuntold at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you and chatting with you and connecting with you at a later time. And Lexi, where can we find you? You can find me at Loch Ness Lex, as in the Loch Ness Monster and L-E-X on Twitter and TikTok. And where can we find you, Talzin? You can find me at Archival Raven on Twitter. Bye! Okay, we love you guys. Bye! (laughs) 